0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Following the horrors of the First World War, people around the world set out to create perfect societies with very mixed results. Anna Nima charts their efforts in her new book, The Utopians, Six Attempts to Build the Perfect Society. BBC History magazine's deputy editor, Matt Elton, spoke to Anna to find out more.
1: So your book, uh, The Utopians, is about um, attempts to build a sort of a perfect or alternative society. Um, given all the news that's going on about climate change, pandemics, that kind of things, I wondered, did you, did you start work on this? before the pandemic kicked off or was it during during all the events we've witnessed in the past sort of 18 months?
2: No, this book has very, very long roots. Um, I started it as a PhD, um, just working on one of the six communities, Dartington Hall, set up in Devon. Um, so, that, so that was uh, long, long before the pandemic started, four or five years. Um, But obviously it did acquire like much more resonance as I was working on it in the last little bit. And I uh, sort of had to, I didn't want to put too much about the pandemic in because I didn't want it to sort of become a a kind of contemporary piece. And I thought that a huge amount is being written about the the pandemic anyway. Um, But um, it did make me think uh, a lot about uh, the way that uh, cataclysmic sort of world events uh, affect people. Um, And actually, uh, there's a sort of kind of interesting contrast between uh, the contemporary pandemic and the flu pandemic in 1918, which happened just before all of my communities were set up in that um, I think the pandemic um, in 1918 is estimated to have killed over 50 million people, perhaps even 100 million people. And the um, COVID pandemic is hovering around sort of j- just upwards of 4 million. So actually, it's a sort of, in a way, a much smaller scale event um, and obviously we haven't really sort of seen the fallout of it particularly but there definitely do seem to be kind of a, a, a lot more impetus to, to change how people are living um and there's also the kind of uh intersection of uh the pandemic of 1918 with the with the first world war and then the contemporary pandemic and global warming sort of becoming a much more kind of imminent problem and it's kind of remains to be seen how those kind of different events are going to affect people but i think that um there's quite quite a lot of eco-communes being set up or eco-communities being set up at the moment or sort of strengthening at the moment. So I wonder if that's going to be kind of our, our contemporary wave of, of utopias in the same way that the utopias I wrote about were much more about kind of pacifist and fulfilling living rather than a, a, a ecology.
1: Hmm. So to situate um, for listeners sort of when this book is exploring, it's covering the years between sort of 1920s and 1940s. Um, to what extent... Were all the utopias you talk about it in this book formed as a result of the trauma of the First World War?
2: Um, I would say that they all were, um, but in very different ways. Uh the, the communities I write about, uh, one is in India, one is in Japan, um, one is in England, one is in Germany, uh, one is in France, and one is in America, and all of those, all of those countries had really different experiences in the war. Um, so uh India was sort of uh the community I write about was Uh, partly as sort of, it wasn't nationalist exactly, but it was partly in response to sort of the way that India was treated and sort of exploited in the First World War. And so it was a sort of effort to create a sort of self-sufficiency independent independent of the British. Um, And then I write about a community which was set up in Germany, sort of in in the the wake of the German defeat in the First World War. And um, that sort of came out of, uh, in an odd way, the same place as Uh, Nazism or or the kind of wave of communism that there was in Germany but the community I write about was very Christian Um, and then there are later communities I write about one which was set up in America um, just uh, around the beginning of the second world war but it was set up by somebody who uh, whose brother died in the first world war so sort of that had a very long tail of effect of people continuing to seek better ways of being so I, I would say they definitely were all pretty closely related to the to the war which just had you know, it it, sh- it shaped the the lives of everyone who lived through it for the rest of their lives. I think. So let's start talking about
1: the the different examples in your book. Um, one of them that's particularly interesting is Dartington Hall, which I believe you've got a personal connection to. Is 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 that right?
2: Yes, I um. My family has a farm uh, next, next door to Dattington Hall and um, I was sort of brought up between uh, there in the, the summer holidays and living in London when I was at school. And so I sort of observed it from afar and it was um, regarded slightly askance by uh, local farmers because it was a, a a place where Londoners came up to sort of get their cultural kicks and also a place where sort of alternative types would uh, um sort of swim naked in the river or perform dances and mimes Um, and so I wasn't really brought up with much of an understanding of what it was doing Um, and I have sort of gradually gradually discovered that and become much more impressed by it so yeah no I do have a personal connection with it and that was um, uh, sort of an experimental community which was set up in 1925 by a Yorkshire squire called Leonard Elmhurst um, who married uh, an American heiress who was originally from the Whitney family who Made a huge amount of money with a sort of monopolies over New York r- railroad cars, um, and she married uh, first a man who died of in the um, influenza pandemic in 1918, um, and then she met uh, Leonard Dalpest and remarried, um, and they were both sort of these extremely idealistic types who had suffered a lot in the um, fallout from the, the First World War and wanted to model a new way of living, and so they they bought this uh, rundown estate in Devon and uh, and sort of began to do that there.
1: And what um what would we have experienced if we were to have um visited um during this period?
2: Uh, it's, it's interesting. It would have depended. If you had visited very early on, you would have sort of arrived to a uh, a great hall with no roof and. Uh, pigs rootling around in the courtyard of this kind of wonderful medieval hall. that was originally um, given by Richard II to his half-brother as as a gift and and was sort of a a grand place that gradually got more and more dilapidated through the centuries. Um, And you would have found... Uh, Dorothy and Leonard Elmhurst sort of attempting to live in state in the hall and um, a a, a small number of us of idealistic people who are working with them. Um, And that would would have been the sort of beginnings of uh, not particularly impressive looking beginnings. And there would have been a a small number of children running around um, getting this progressive education. But then if you arrived um, in the 1930s, uh, it became this internationally renowned centre for progressive progressive living and for the arts um, and a large number of people who sort of uh, fled from the Nazi regime in Germany uh, and um, in other sort of surrounding countries that sort of ended up at Dartington. Um, so there was a sort of huge ballet company and Walter Gropius, the founder of the Bauhaus, came and designed a bit of the uh, theatre and um, lots of people would sort of take the train up from London at the weekends to uh, take part in the kind of various activities going on there. So Dartington was very much about... Uh, Leaving the sort of capitalistic nexus and finding a more uh, holistic, sort of all-round fulfilling way for people to live that was uh, also much more cooperative. So it was trying to combine a life where people had sort of creativity, they had sort of much more progressive education that lasted from uh, the cradle to the grave, and they did have work. They, I mean, there was a, it was a there was a, economic work was a part of it, but it was all pretty experimental and didn't make very much money. Fortunately, they had Dorothy Elmhurst's vast fortune to rely on, so they didn't have to make too much money. Um, And, yeah, it was sort of this constantly changing but extremely vibrant fabric of people um, experimenting with radical ideas about how best to live.
1: I'm fascinated by, and it's a recurring theme of your book, about the kind of people that set up these kind of communities. What do we know about Dorothy Elmshurst, who you just mentioned particularly? um, And to what extent does this community reflect the ideals of its founders?
2: um i'm extremely fond of dorothy elmhurst after having spent many years studying her and i'm particularly fond of her because amongst all the people who i write about who set up these communities there are very few women um who uh have influence like there are many women in the communities themselves but there are very very few women who are sort of leading them um and i think dorothy elmhurst is the exception uh in part because she was extremely wealthy and in part because she was extremely determined to use her wealth in a good way and she um I came to Dartington in her late 30s, having sort of spent the early part of her life engaged in various different forms of experimental philanthropy. And I think that that probably represents um, a lot of the other people who who set up these communities. For instance, Rabbi Andreth Tagore, who's this Nobel winning poet um, and social reformer. Um, he set up uh, a community in Bengal con- called Shantinikatan um when he was in his 60s. And he had sort of tried lots of other routes for improving society um, before that, and so I think I think there was a certain characteristic in all of these idealistic men and women who who end up abandoning everything about their everyday lives to to, to set up one of these communities is 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 that that constant questing um, and dedication to the idea that there is there is a better way of being lived uh, to discover.
1: Despite having this sort of female um, figure at its head, is it right to say that this community? however, wasn't particularly sort of open to feminist ideals or that it still reflected, I suppose, the sort of patriarchal structure of society at at the time?
2: Yes, I don't think any of the communities I write about, including Dartington, um, had a particularly sort of feminist forward uh, approach to living. I I, I would say that um, the sort of a uh, feminist urge of the time seemed to have gone much more into sort of mainstream uh, campaigning for well, you know, expanded suffrage or expanded social rights and that the sort of uh, act of uh, seceding from society to build the utopia didn't really make sense if you were still at the point of trying to gain more of a foothold in society as a woman. So that in, in a way... Um, uh none of these communities had a particularly sort of progressive role for women. And when you look at the Bruderhof community, which was set up in Germany um, and uh, was attempting to model itself on the early church, uh, the role of women is uh, uh, much more limited. Again, they they end up uh, sort of dressing very conservatively in sort of long skirts and headscarves and taking much less of a role than men in in, in gui- guiding the direction of the community. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to say that there's... Um, nothing sort of experimental in gender roles. For instance, Dartington became this uh, sort of sanctuary for various uh, gay people um, in the 1930s, um, including Mark Toby, an American artist, um, and Gerald Herd, Um, Some of them were sort of out-and-out gays, some of them were... N- just didn't didn't talk about it um for instance Gerald had sort of didn't really come out as gay until um much later in in America sort of in in public circles although he was in private circles um, so so th- so, there, so there were sort of progressive elements in um that's that that area of sort of gender relations um, but but yes I wouldn't i wouldn't say that these were communities where where the um role of women was sort of excitingly progressive
1: and how how was this community viewed by the community around it by society at large, I suppose.
2: Well, it depends what, what uh, how, how widely you look. I think locally, Dartington um, uh, attracted a great deal of opprobrium. It, it, uh, this was a period where um, Britain was largely Christian and the Elmhurst, um, uh, Leonard Elmhurst, who was also founded in Dartington, originally trained as a vicar and then lost his faith in the First World War. Two of his brothers died fighting. And um, he believed that the church had sort of supported the war and so this completely destroyed his desire to become a vicar and so they they um rejected all christian teaching which um Infuriated the sort of conservative elements in local society, and uh, people wouldn't send their locals wouldn't send their children to Dartington School. Some of them because of that kind of lack of Christian teaching, and uh, there were sort of rumours that black magic was occur- was occurring at Dartington, and um, it, it was a sort of a place of evil. There was a there's a church that was and still is situated just beyond the kind of boundaries of Dartington, and the the vicar there was particularly conservative and would sort of preach against the Elmhursts, and his his church became a sort of a a place where where people who opposed this estate could congregate so so it did really have a very bad local reputation um and uh but n- nationally um and internationally sort of in progressive circles it became this really uh really important kind of collecting point for people who wanted to do uh new things with their lives um and that was partly because it had a lot of money and partly because the elmhurst were very kind of capacious and inclusive and in, in in their sort of View of uh, how 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 this sort of better life should be lived, and really it was about sort of enabling other people to to live out their idea, ideas as well as executing their own. Um, and I think in a funny way, Dartington um, has sort of remained with this kind of slightly difficult relationship with the local community, um, but also remained very important in sort of wider circles. And other uh, other communities had to varying degrees perhaps quite a similar sort of relationship with the, with the surrounding countryside um, because they were all rural communities. Um, and also were sort of flagships in the wider progressive mu- movement.
1: We should talk about some of those other uh, other communities that you explore in your book. Um, what other communities did you pick and what do they tell us about, about this period, I suppose?
2: I mean, it was interesting choosing the communities. I did my PhD on Dartington and so that led me to two of the communities. One One was set up by Tagore in India. And Leonard Elmhurst, who set up Dartington, had been with Tagore in the early 1920s, um, sort of helping him set up his uh, helping him set up his, his community. And uh, another community set up in J- Japan called Atarashikimura or the New Village, which was set up by a um, Japanese novelist called Mishakunoji Sanitsu, was indirectly inspired by Tagore, who uh, travelled to Japan as part of his sort of Nobel laureate winning um, international tour. Um, so, so those and, and those three all have a sort of certain similarity in being a lot about uh, holistic fulfilment, sort of the head, the heart, and the hand, um, stepping away from a capitalism and towards cooperation. So, I, I suppose I sort of those those three have that sort of similarity, but obviously um, the experience of Japan, um, an independent country, uh, Britain, which was a sort of colonial, I suppose in some ways, and uh, India, which was a colonized nation, were all very different. Um, and then the the other three communities I look at, I suppose are united by having a sort of certain spiritual or religious strand. And obviously this was a an interesting era in terms of um religious change um and the sort of movement away from um a sort of Christian status quo, I wouldn't say towards any form of secularism, but certainly towards sort of more questing and interest in alternatives. um and uh, the bruderhof community, which was set up in Germany was about, I suppose reforming the church and stepping away from mainstream Christianity but towards a sort of more um pure version um, which was not about uh, the sort of conventional infrastructure of the church but which was li- about living in the spirit of the Bible um, and then the other communities I look at the other two communities I look at came from this very different strand of um a kind of zeitgeist I suppose which was about uh spiritualism and and uh developing a sort of a a new approach to life a new spiritual approach to life which to also some to some degree uh combine the social sciences and psychology um but perhaps not in very scientific ways
1: Hmm. let's talk about Bruderhof there which you mentioned there um which was the uh, the sort of um utopia that aimed to put the bible's teaching into into a real place um how, how did they do that and how did it go
2: Well, I I always uh, uh, I have occasionally in discussing this book with people sort of been criticized for being a bit too much of an advocate for the Bruderhof community um, in that I would say they were quite successful in doing what they were doing, what they intended to do and much more successful um, than some of the other communities. They had this um, very clear blueprint for what they wanted to do. in, in the Bible, in the in the early church in the Bible, sort of Jesus' disciples following him and the way that they behaved. They lived in a community of goods. They shared everything that they had. Um, and uh, the Bruderhof did that. Um, and so the the trouble with a lot of the other communities I write about is they didn't really have a sort of manifesto for what they wanted to do. Um, and it was very easy, particularly once the sort of charismatic founders uh, lost their charisma or died, uh, to sort of lose lose track of quite what they were planning to do. Whereas the Bruderhof community didn't have that problem, and um, they started off as a very small group of people following this uh, man who was first trained as a preacher called Eberhard Arnold and his wife, who Emmy, who was equally important in founding the community, and um, they continue today, a hundred years later, more than a hundred years later, um, as. I think there are twenty-three communities now, um, all, all all across the world. I think there's around three thousand um, people living in these communities, and they're following pretty much the same uh, sort of blueprint um, as they were in the the nineteen twenties. Um, and to me, that's uh, quite impressive in in a in a feat. I mean, as a feat, I think I think that um, there's a certain. Uh, uh, it's sometimes incompatibility between idealism and competence or there can be um, they, the two don't always go together um, and I would say that that's probably been the case in, in the people I've read about and I think the Bruderhof community sort of demonstrate something different um, the, the founders didn't have very much money when they began and I think that was very helpful for them um, and was quite different to the other communities I write about which were set up often by elite people with, with a fairly large uh, sum of money at their command so they had to sort of work out how to be economically sustainable early on um, um, which um, meant that meant they could keep going, um, and are sort of still going now, and and, and are kind of financially viable. Um, and, and they definitely had a very bad time in that they started off in Germany. They were they were pre- persecuted by the Nazis. They ended up in Liechtenstein, and then in Britain, and then in Paraguay, and then in America. So they sort of it, it was it was tough going. Um, But they did keep going, none of which is to say that I think the Bruderhof community is a sort of blueprint for a perfect society. Um, I I went to stay with them, uh, one of of the communities in Sussex, um, which was incredibly interesting in terms of uh, the experience of living with people who are living out their social ideals, which are totally different to sort of mainstream social ideals, but was quite shocking in terms of the um, abnegation of sort of individual responsibility and choice um, you sort of did really what you were told and there was a timetable from dawn to dusk and also um the sort of uh gender dynamics were, were quite uh different to the outside world and i found them quite difficult they were sort of the women's roles are viewed fairly conservatively um they dress conservatively they tend to marry early and have children and um not to be as um, involved in the day-to-day guidance of the community as the men. still to come on the history extra podcast I do think that some of the people who joined the communities had had difficult things happen to them or difficult lives um, and did want to sort of subsume themselves to something bigger than themselves. And so there was a certain uh, loss of self, which a lot of these communities offered.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. what was the manifesto of of this community
2: i would say that it was about manifesting god's kingdom on earth in as much as possible so it was about living in christian brotherhood i suppose and that meant sharing things and they were interesting because they didn't really want to sort of convert the world necessarily but they wanted to sort of work with um other people in the world who had a similar uh, philosophy, whether they were actually Christian or not, it was sort of, there was it had a um, quite quite strongly influenced by the socialist movement. I, I think they they sort of aren't necessarily particularly uh, strongly um, supportive of the label, but probably sort of Christian socialism is one kind of broader broad way of uh, categorizing them.
1: Heading from Germany to France, another of your chapters um, focuses on the incredibly named Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man. Um, can you talk us through what that means and when this particular community was established?
2: Well, this was established by a fellow called G.I. Gurdjieff, who was a, a extremely flamboyant um, and possibly quite sinister Greek-Armenian who was probably the only one of the utopians who I write about in my book who I ended up not having a great deal of sympathy for. He was born sort of... Uh, on the edge of the Russian Empire, and wrote a, a book about sort of going wandering, wandering in the desert for several decades, and acquiring spiritual wisdom that way, and gradually, eventually, sort of turned up as this sort of guru or leader of this uh, spiritual system he called the fourth way, which at his heart had a sort of idea of shocking people out of their machine-like states um, into a sort of full consciousness or waking them up. There are lots of different ways that he wrote about it. And he ended up writing several, uh, I would say, slightly incomprehensible, but also interesting books about his, about his uh, spiritual system. And... Um, He was in Russia uh, during the revolution in 1917 and acquired a lot of following followers who uh, were just so shaken up by this, that, that they thought it was necessary to sort of find a new way to live. And then, um, of course the sort of fallout from the first world War had the same sort of psychological effect on lots of people where they really wanted to believe in something different. Um, and he, he ended up, he tried to settle in, um, England. He wanted to sort of set up a community where he, a stronghold where he could sort of, uh, evangelize his spiritual system and the, uh, British government wouldn't. He wanted to set up a community in Hampstead, and the British government wouldn't allow him there. As you can probably understandably, by this point he had acquired a sort of a quite kind of m- m- motley following of uh, different nationalities, um, and uh, so he he um, ended up in the woods of Fontainebleau, um, just outside Paris, um, in a in an old priory. And uh, yeah, he 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 turned this into a sort of a stronghold for his system, and had a sort of garden and a, and a little farm, and um, it attracted a, an astonishing range of people, including um, Catherine Mansfield, um, the New Zealand novelist, who. Uh, died of tuberculosis there. Um, and I think a lot of people sort of suggested that Gajjev killed her, but I don't think that that was the case. Um, and uh, he he is sort of an exception amongst the people I write about because I think that he probably could be classed as a sort of cult leader um, as much as a utopian in that his system sort of didn't really work without him and, and it was his, his uh, magnetic personality which sort of made it make sense. Um, although uh, he does have a a large number of followers um, up to the present day when I was researching um, uh, the Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man in the British Library, um, there were these little red cards in many of the books about him that sort of fell out, that were sort of advertising um, belonging, belonging to various Ger- Ger- Gergifian societies. Um, and when I was trying to get images for the book, I also sort of ran into a, a certain amount of opposition from people who who didn't really believe that I was painting him in, in a very good light, which was
1: from their point of view probably true. So he's a classic example of a charismatic figure whose influence we can still feel reaching through the decades even today. Um, You mentioned that one of his aims was to shock people out of their complacency. What sort of methods did did he use to do that?
2: I mean, anything he could think of, really. For instance, he he would require uh, people to uh, so dig ditches all the way across the sort of beautiful, beautiful garden of the priory. And then the next day he would tell them to sort of fill fill, fill the ditch back in again, or he would um, get people to grow flowers and then would drive the, fla- the, the few sort of skinny cows from the farm across the flower beds. Um, he... I think he took a. He was supposed to have taken a kind of religious leader. I don't know, maybe perhaps a bishop into this sort of little sauna that he built. Actually, you can still see the remnants of it in the in the grounds of the priory today. And he um, stripped off and uh, sort of show, showed himself to the bishop, and um, you know, who just just basically any anything went. I think in terms of. Um, Waking people up, but of course there seems to be a certain kind of symbiosis between his character, which was someone who liked shocking people, and the this you know spiritual system that, that he created, which was also about shocking people. And yeah, I think he was also just extremely mean to people. Um, yeah, which is, you know, people, people, people weren't expecting. Um, but I suppose the really extraordinary thing about him is that he did, uh, you know, attract people from across the world to his, to his, uh, to his cause. So there must have be he must, there must have been something there. And I think this is one of those instances, which sort of do happen as a historian, where you can sort of feel the the echoes of someone's personality down through time, but you can't totally capture it yourself you can't. You, can't you, you don't know exactly what it was that, that uh, drew people to him. And also, I think it was partly a product of the times and people being so uncertain and him having a sort of certainty, which um, was really very impressive.
1: That's really interesting, because it's also quite hard for me in that particular case to get into the mindset of somebody who would want to go to that kind of community where I'm just doing seemingly pointless tasks. Do you think... That there is a mindset common among the kinds of people who would attend these communities or join these communities, despite their geographical diversity.
2: I don't. I. I. I think that there are certain commonalities, but I don't think there's one sort of particular type. Like I do think that some of the people who join the communities um, had had difficult things happen to them or difficult lives, um, and. Did want to sort of subsume themselves to something bigger than themselves. And so there was a certain uh, loss of self, which a lot of these communities offered, particularly something like the Breederhof community or actually Tribuca College in uh, California, which placed a lot of emphasis on, oh, all these metaphors were used of, of, who's being a log um, who's needed to sort of join the fire in order that the fire burned brighter, that kind of thing. So, so that, so that was one sort of thing. But then I think that there was just this sort of, broad sort of feeling um after the first world board that that something new was needed that that really did encompass a huge number of people and i don't think it was particularly you know i don't think you could particularly att- attribute it to to them being a certain type so much as that this was just this kind of world shakingly awful time um when it felt like continuing as you had gone before wasn't right and so um anything that really was going ahead with trying to model a new way was very attractive um yeah that was a, a wide appeal
1: I'm also really interested uh you say in your book that this is a period that's often talked about in terms of nation scale political and social experiments so fascism i suppose is one really extreme example but there's lots of others whereas these are more sort of individual or community uh, based attempts to do the same sort of thing is 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 that fair to say
2: Yes i i i mean i i think it was a, a sort of uh the elephant in the room when i was writing my book was sort of is it is uh what is the utopia, and and is fascism or communism a sort of um, uh, utopian project in the same way that the ones that I'm looking at are? And I, I I just thought that I had to sort of look at them as as completely sort of separate things. These are sort of very small groups of idealists who are trying to turn their social dream into a real community, and um, they're using the fabric of their own lives to do it on a small scale, and they don't have any um, sort of forceful proselytizing. Uh, Ambitions. They 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 hoped that they were going to model these sort of you know in, in a very gentle style to sort of model these communities and hope that it would revolutionise the world, but but um, not that they were going to force other people to sort of follow the same blueprint. So I I, th- I think that the sort of um, a l- large scale um, you know social reform movements like fascism um, came from sort of the same uh, historical nexus of, of 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 needing needing something new, um, but but I think that the sort of the type um, of urge that we're talking about was, was very different.
1: Mm. are there any other individuals who we've not talked about who we probably should
2: i think that um gerald heard um is a very interesting uh character who who sort of threads his way through this book um he he was at dartington hall in the 1920s and 1930s and he set up this uh thing called the generating cell there which was about um creating a sort of uh spiritual uh link between um everyone, between groups of generating cells around the world, which was going to prevent there being another war because there was going to be this sort of networked intercommunication of um, sort of hum- harmony. Um, and he uh, was became furious with Dartington because he didn't think it was sort of radical enough and ended up leaving um, and taking part in the um, Peace Pledge movement. Um in, in London for a bit. And then he decided that uh, as uh, the Second World War was coming and the whole of Europe was going to get blown up, he he was going to move to America. He was a BBC uh, science correspondent for, for a while. So he sort of uh, had, a, had a a had strong views on, on what science was going to do in um, in war. Um, and then he, he set up this community called Tribuco College in just outside Los Angeles, um, which was the smallest community I write about. And it lasted the shortest time. Um, but it's extremely interesting for its sort of long tail into the counterculture of the 1960s. So it was combining um, Western and Eastern religions and some element of uh, science or psychology, um, and trying to sort of turn people into the sort of pacifist leaders of men. He called them Brahmins or neo-Brahmins, um, who are sort of going to go out and 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 lead the world to sort of uh, spiritual union. Um, it was, sounds quite mad, but he uh, he lived on uh, after his uh, community closed in 1947, um, and and with Aldous Huxley, who was a, a big supporter of Chabuco College, he sort of became a, a a leader of the the counterculture and sort of um, was uh, would would sort of preach his his uh, his ideas of sort of synthesis between East and West, and they became advocates of uh, using LSD to um, sort of fuse your mind to the universal consciousness. Um yeah, and he and he probably a bit like giagurgieeff was a seems to have been a, a very magnetic man. um but when you read his letters, they seem uh, not nonsensical but but uh, a bit of stream of consciousness, a bit of stream of consciousness there in terms of the logic can
1: can we and this might be a stretch. Can we see connections between figures such as him particularly, and the sort of darker characters of people like Charles Manson when we think about the cults that emerge from the the, the, the counterculture in America?
2: I find that question quite difficult to answer. I I I I think um it's interesting there's a whole sort of there seems to be a whole science of sort of cults what is a cult who is a cult leader and I didn't really know a great deal about that. I mean I think these uh people I look at uh did come out of a moment of great historical trauma and had often suffered in whatever way themselves like for instance Gerald had was also training to be a vicar. Seems to be a, a bit of a, a commonality amongst many of my my uh, protagonists. And he his his brother died in the war, and he had a a complete uh, mental breakdown. And after that, he sort of saw his his role in life as being to sort of find find a better way for himself and for mankind he was also gay and I think that his sort of um, repressed homosexuality was kind of a a big issue in his in his uh, sort of discontent with the world as as it was and his sense of needing to find something else and I I, I feel like that um, emergence out of a particular historical juncture perhaps is a little bit different to some of the sort of latter-day cults because people were jolted into that by by wider forces rather than simply wanting adoration and attention and and in a way Gerald Hurd was quite um reclusive and when he set up his community part of the problem was all he wanted to do was sit in his room sit in his room and read his books um and he didn't really want to kind of provide the the day-to-day leadership and and the sense of telling everyone what to do and what to eat that that actually a lot of the people who joined the community craved so i think perhaps there's not that much of a similarity but Uh, I mean, I'm sure some people could draw threads.
1: (laughs) If I was to finish this interview and go and set up my own kind of utopian society, what three things should I should I focus on to make sure it worked? Are are there sort of key things that you think um, are really important ingredients?
2: Yes, definitely. I I think although I would be reluctant to join you community myself, having spent a long time reading about the wrangles that people have during them, there are uh, certainly things that one could do that would make it work better. I think having a manifesto of some kind is very important. Um, a written manifesto. And I think some uh, of the communities I, w- I wrote about, like Atarashiki Shikimura in Japan, um, they had a, a six-point manifesto called The Spirit of Atarashiki Shikimura, and they had a, a communal hall where this was sort of nailed up outside. And in fact, the community still uh, exists that had to move from southern Japan to just outside Tokyo. And you can just go and see this uh, this uh, uh, spirit of Atarashiki Shikimura still nailed up there. And I think that that just stops um, communities losing track of where they're going once their founders die. Um, I think it has to be not too detailed because obviously you need to sort of change to, to meet the changing uh, historical challenges challenges of your time. But, but I do think something is important. And then um, I think it's important to have a sustainable economic model of some kind. Um, I think that uh, uh, it's very problematic when communities are set up by rich people who don't need to concentrate on doing that to begin with. And often... Um, Utopian communities are about sort of seceding from capitalism, but you can't really do that without thinking of uh, some possible alternative. Um the Rabinand Stogo, uh, and G.I. Gurdjieff, two of the people I write about, just ended up asking asking for money over and over again as the way of keeping their community going. Uh, Datington Hall in Devon had uh, the sort of Whitney Elmhurst uh, fortune behind it. Um, and it's uh has really suffered since since that, for that fortune. Has, has, it got left with an endowment, but it didn't really know how to make that endowment not sort of whittle away too quickly. And then um, probably one more thing, which is very useful, is a very clear uh, decision-making process that doesn't rely on one person. Um, uh Ate Oshikimura had a, a sort of de- very democratic decision-making process, which often meant that they didn't get much done because they were constantly at an impasse, but it sort of was there um, whereas some, somewhere like uh, G.I. Gurdjieff's Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man just sort of had him um, dictatorially saying what should happen um, from above, and he actually he was in a car crash sort of halfway through the life of the community, and uh, was stuck in a coma for a while, and nothing happened in the community apart from everyone waiting outside his door after after, after he was um, after he fell unconscious. So yeah, I think there's probably a, a manifesto, a good decision-making process, and um, some sort of sustainable economic model are all very important. But I think that probably all these communities do end up having um, a lot of uh, internal friction.
1: Um, And is it that that eventually means some of the examples or some other examples come to an end? Can we chart sort of the end of the heyday of these sorts of kind of ways of living?
2: I think that two things... Bring them to an end, and it's not exactly internal wrangling. I think I think money actually does end up being a very important thing because if you don't have money, you simply can't turn ideals into practice. It, some some money is required to do that, but also, utopian communities are inspired by the problems of their time. And I think once those problems make way for other problems, um, unless the, the community sort of changes their focus, they 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 lose lose their importance. So Atarashiki Mura is very interesting because it was founded at a point when the Japanese government was really trying to kind of mobilize and modernize Japan. And so it was trying to impose this sort of idea that uh, everyone would sacrifice themselves for wider society. And Atarashiki Mura is the only community I look at which is about the eye and um, the importance of individualism. And that was because it was sort of reacting against this wider social philosophy. Um, and although there's a certain sort of con- continuation of that in Japan, it's not really the sort of overriding thing now. And so although Atoshiki Kimura still exists, it's sort of, I think there's about 17 octogenarians who live there now. And it doesn't really, I mean, it's interesting in terms of its sort of low carbon footprint and i think it has uh, and and it's sort of communitarian it does have a communitarian element despite the individualism but but it, it doesn't it's not so relevant to kind of contemporary society and so there was a well there was a moment in in the 1920s where there's sort of new village craze across japan where where people were trying to set up uh, communities imitating Kimura. but now of course they aren't because it's just not relevant to the problems of the time so yeah i think i think um times change and the communities become less relevant and i think the communities run out of money and it's one of those two things that so usually what what uh do them in in the end
1: so it's that they're banged up in their particular sort of historical context do you think that the uh, communities you study in this book have any lessons for us at this particular historical moment
2: i think they do and they don't um i think that the uh, sort of humane lifestyle that they were aspiring aspiring towards uh which was um about cooperation and about uh, not being too materialistic um, are continue to be very important. Um, and I think they continue to um, be uh, values which run in opposition to the mainstream. Um, so I think I think that I could say something broad like that. And then I think that they um, demonstrate um, that we don't have to just sort of sit back and accept the status quo that people can choose to dedicate themselves to experiments to um, how to live better on a small scale and um, they will have an influence, even if that's also on a small scale. So I suppose that they're sort of demonstrations of um, of possibility, and um, the each of the communities did have sort of wider effects, and some of them quite sort of dramatically wider effects. Like um, the elm house uh, at, at Dartington were kind of very focused on. Um, making the arts available to everybody and um, they uh, eventually conducted an inquiry into arts in in Britain Um, and this kind of fed into the creation of the Arts Council so it sort of had an effect on um, the state Um, and then uh, Tagore um, created this education system which was um, about practical education as well as academic education so it was something which was of more relevance to village children than than, um, an elite education system would be and um mk gandhi went to um stay at his community and was very inspired by this and um created a national system of education which also had a sort of very practical element sort of you'd have your your, your couple of hours of learning maths and literature and then you would go off and learn how to milk a cow or to bottle fruit um and so i i i think that um the communities sort of do indirectly demonstrate that these small experiments outside the mainstream can have wider effects
1: Mm. And that these experiments have effects that seep into wider society—is that right?
2: Not completely. Um, they are—they are to a degree uh, refuges and escapes, and they are often um, the privilege of, of, of the wealthy or the sort of people who sort of can afford to separate themselves off from society. But uh, yeah, I do think I do think that they they can and sometimes do have an impact on wider society in a in a quite intangible way.
1: Finally. Um... You mentioned there that you've had some experience of kind of um, going to visit these communities as well as just researching them. What were the things that most surprised you in the course of of writing this book?
2: I mean, I suppose um, as a historian, you spend most of your time reading words on paper. Um, And uh, I think that the experience of uh, visiting the communities was surprising in terms of um, the sort of connection to the tangible sort of practicality of of efforts in the past to improve society like i loved going to stay with the Bruderhof community because um you woke up at dawn you sat around a a kitchen table and sang Bruderhof hymns and then you went into a workshop and you um assembled wooden toys for most of the day um and i think that uh i was surprised by how uh i felt so emotionally connected to the people who, who, who set up, um, the communities that I write about. And my, um, my grandfather actually was a a farmer in Devon and when he retired, he set up this sort of tiny, um, eco commune, um, by the sea in Devon. Um, and I really hated being taken there as a child. It was, it was quite scummy, um, he, he, he it, it was all about sort of demonstrating how you can live a very low, low carbon lifestyle. So he would sort of lived in one room and lined it with uh, insulator boards. And he burnt one log on the fire and didn't think you need to live above 18 degrees C. So it was really cold in the winter and he turned the fridge off. So the milk was off. And um, it, it was generally sort of uh, there was a lot of arguments between the various people he lived with. Um, and uh, I think it was only as I grew older and partly as I'd studied these communities that I sort of connected um the kind of mundane minutiae of day-to-day struggles with these kind of uh much broader kind of sweeping ide- ideals um and 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 i suppose i yeah i suppose the sort of um the physical reality of, of what life would have been like for, these, for the people in these communities was something which I only really got by a combination of, I guess, my grandfather's example and, and visiting um, not all the communities sort of continue in their physical form, but you can visit the places where they were set up um, at least and, and get that sense of, of uh, day-to-day life.
0: That was Anna Nima. Her book, The Utopians, Six Attempts to Build the Perfect Society, is out now, published by Picador. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for an episode on a new history textbook that's shining a light on the slave trade.